0: like I said, I, I I I would kind of was intrigued by them. They had lots of money, uh, especially the big boss. I mean, they're just living these lives that I have had never seen flying in on private jets, that kind of thing. And um, I, I really think that they recruited me because they felt like it wouldn't be a moral issue for me. Um, I would be like, man, it's not like there wasn't food on the table. It's not like my power was being cut off. It was going on vacations and staying in these hotels that I would have never been able to afford and telling my husband that it's my boss's account, that it's they hold that suite. Like they don't hold a suite. A company doesn't hold a suite. I wouldn't have ever said that I was addicted to money or addicted to criminal activity, but once I was in it, I became addicted. You know, it's definitely, definitely turned into an addiction. And with that. Like any other addiction, you kind of, you're having to lie and you're having to hide it and you're pushing people that you love further away. The first offer he brought to me and asked me to sign, encouraged me to sign was for a 40 year sentence, four zero.
1: Hey, this is Matt Cox and I'm here with Marcy Simmons. She did I want to say 10 years in prison, I'm probably off for a for embezzlement and she's got a super um interesting TikTok account and she's got uh just started a YouTube channel and she does shorts and TikToks and so check this out. Where were you born?
0: So I was born in Colorado and my parents um moved me down here when I was 2. I still I claim that I'm a Texan.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So I live in Texas and and have been here my whole life. So
1: right. Never basically normal childhood went to high school. No problems.
0: Yeah, very much um, like a lower middle class um, family and played sports as a kid. My parents, my dad's a musician. My parents are a bit Hippie ish, you know, and I kind of grew up to love everybody and have an open mind, but I still kind of grew up in this little bubble. (laughs) So, yes, love everybody, and yes, have an open mind, and yes, think for yourself and live and let live. But we're, I'm still just protected from, I I did not grow up in a diverse neighborhood. I did not, I was not exposed to um, anybody that lived in poverty or grew up in poverty. And, um, So yeah, I, I hit culture shock big time when I got incarcerated.
1: Okay. Um, So, okay. So, and, but then you went to work, uh, you went to work for, so you, you, did you go to school, college?
0: So I went to some college, but I ended up having too many babies. And um, I I have one freshman year under my belt at street college. I did do um, college in while, while I was incarcerated, but yeah, I ended up being a pretty young mother. Um, and so I was a stay at home mom for a while uh, and the kids got older and I started working, um, in human resources without a degree. Right, And uh, that was around 2004. Um, and I ended up working for a manufacturing plant for a couple of entrepreneurs. So um, these guys were uh, just kind of big money guys that would buy companies out and undersell their competition so that their competition would then buy the company from them. And that's how they turned their profit. They didn't turn their profit from actually making goods. So I ended up kind of getting connected with these guys. I had a pretty good job. <laughs> I felt like I, I kind of looking back i was like man i had it pretty easy because then i had a couple more kids during that time and they were so lenient with with me being a working mom they were lenient with if the baby had to come sometimes that was okay like it it was pretty chill uh for a while until it wasn't
1: (laughs) right what and and so what they were uh, they were you know we talked about it before like they were kind of cooking the books themselves or asking you to help them kind of shift money around to make it look like they had more money in reserves and or were making more money or buying product not spending as much on on the materials and to make them look like they were you know doing really well when actually they were breaking even or losing money is that
0: yeah, that's spot on. That's exactly what was happening. And I was kind of participating in that. And as I'm participating in that, I'm losing respect for them. Um, right. I, I'm seeing, uh, I kind of, I'm starting to feel like they're pretty shiesty in the way that they make money. And right. it, it just, it, yeah, I felt like I was doing a lot more for what I made. You know, and um so that's what was kind of going on at work
1: well, I think I think that you know, like just the operation that you explain what their their business strategy is to go into an industry that's an already existing industry and then undercut their their competition not to provide a better product or to buy provide a more economic product, but simply to squeeze the other company so badly that they eventually have to buy them out or maybe just bankrupt them. And then, of course, they can double their, you know, raise all their prices and double their profit margin if they could just outlast the other guy. Like, you know, in in some ways I get it, like undercutting your competition by, you know, by providing maybe a, a, well, maybe if you just did it better, if you were just a better manufacturer, you're just better at it. Uh, but if that was your, simply your, your business model is I'm going to create such a problem for these guys, I'll force them to buy us out. That seems slightly, I like it I'm not saying I don't like it, but it does seem slightly on, you know, um, underhanded, but you know, so, so, I mean, I can, I can kind of get that where you're like, okay, this isn't quite what I thought it was. Like you guys are a little, little sheisty here. Um, so what were the kinds of things you were doing? You you had said like you were just shifting money around to show basically to show that there was more money on hand.
0: Right. They want to show the potential buyer that they're, they don't want to show that they're making this huge loss. Right. So I'm kind of moving money around at specific times to make the books look um, and even labeling transactions incorrectly. You know, I'm moving money around from, an account that's like one of the boss's accounts, his personal account and putting it in as an accounts receivable and not a, we're floating the company with our own personal fund funds. And so, yeah.
1: Um, so wh- what happened? How did that evolve? Like, you know, how did that evolve into you? You know, you basically starting to embezzle money.
0: Yeah. I, so there was like some behind the scenes on the home front things going on that I think contributed to maybe subconsciously contributed to. So I had um, three middle school kids from my first husband and he I stayed at home the, fir- the whole time married to him. And while he built himself up education um, career and he was making really good money. He had gotten a really good job. Uh He had, they had just bought a new home, like a half a million dollar home. And my kids are coming back from coming home from his house and they've been spoiled and money's everywhere. That's just, and, and here I am um, in a new marriage where my husband's just now building his business and I have new babies and we are like, we're making it our bills are paid, but I don't have money to get the kids, you know, everything that their little heart desires, like they were getting at their dad's. So, so that was kind of subconscious. And then I'm there at work and I'm kind of losing respect more and more every day for, for the company, for my bosses. Um, and I'm seeing how they're floating this money around. And I thought, gosh, I could, money around too for my benefit. And it was, you know, looking back, I I wish, I don't wish, but oftentimes while I was incarcerated, um, I would be like, man, it's not like there wasn't food on the table. It's not like my power was being cut off. It was, it was literally just, I saw something and I felt like I was pretty smart going about it. So it was a little bit of an ego thing also. It was just really stupid. So I started opening accounts. I opened a few business accounts that for, from businesses that had been closed. And that's like public knowledge. They're, I use their tax ID numbers. <laughs> and um, I started exactly how they were floating funds around. I started floating funds around also and mislabeling those transactions to make it look like it was like an accounts payable type situation. And I started kiting money to and from those fake accounts.
1: So they've got, they've got your, you're in human resources and they've got you doing their books.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was it's kind of a small it was kind of a smaller operation. So it isn't it they only employ like 50 employees. And um, it was just a handful of us that kind of did everything. And so uh, when it when they started doing I really feel like when they started doing kind of shysty, they felt comfortable with me. Um, I was very loyal to them. Like I said, I, 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 I would kind of was intrigued by them. They had lots of money, uh, especially the big boss. I mean, they're just living these lives that I have had never seen, flying in on private jets, that kind of thing. And um, I, I really think that they recruited me because they felt like I, sadly, that it wouldn't be a moral issue for me.
2: He's been known to cure insecurity just with his laugh. His organ donation card lists his charisma. His smile is so contagious vaccines have been created for it he is the most interesting man in the world i don't
1: typically commit crime but when i do it's bank fraud stay greedy my friends
2: support the channel join matthew cox's patreon
1: <laughs> you don't give all that impression to me but but I, I I understand, or I, I was going to say, or maybe just that. Hey, this is a this is a a person that's got multiple children. She's you know a small town girl. She's going to be impressed with us, and this is somebody that I think I can we can manipulate. Somebody that's you know someone that you know we build up some loyalty with her, and I, I think she'll she'll work with us. So and I think you you get that feel. I know as a mortgage broker, when I was asking people to do things that they shouldn't have done, I could always kind of tell this is somebody that I can, I can work with. And I I usually know that right away, right away. And so, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, 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 it wasn't hard for me to tell. I think, you know, I think a fisherman knows a fisherman, you know, like, they kind of think, you know, and, you know, you kind of tell when somebody's in a desperate spot. Like I've, I've had people that were in desperate spots and 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 thought, yeah, I can get him to do it. Why? Well, because if we yank the account from him, he loses seven thousand dollars a month or five thousand, or three thousand dollars a month. And he needs that. I know he needs that because he's building a new house or I know he needs that because he was telling me about that. You know, so that's going to hurt. Um, or he asked me the other day if I could give him more work. So if I yanked a little bit of work he is getting. So, you know, I think you start to feel that ability to, um, you know, who's, who's able to be manipulated. So, you know, I don't know anyway. So, well, so how long did did this take place over what period of time?
0: So it was around 2007. um, I started skimming money a little bit here and there and, uh, I continued on for three and a half years until I got caught.
1: I mean, did, did it ever come up?
0: Well, we were say- audited, you know, we had regular audits <laughs> uh, biannual annual audits. And um, this sounds so horrible, but it's a huge, like, uplift to your ego when you know you're, do- you're doing something well enough that it gets through an audit and it, and it, it becomes a little, it was a high, like the first audit, I was panicked beforehand. I was panicked during, but I'm trying to play cool because I'm also helping give information and, you know, send paperwork. And, um, but at the end it was such a high when it was over and nothing had got caught. I mean, that was, that was just part of it, right? Like it's a high to, to get this money. It's to make a transaction and then know that money is yours that's it that's a huge high to have a pile of cash in your hand. your ego just grows and grows and you feel like um, you
1: become emboldened.
0: Yes, yes, that's exactly right um, you take higher risks you. you know, do even more and more. And so, yeah, it never came up. I was never questioned during that time and nobody ever said, Hey, where did this go? Hey, what was this? Every now and then with anything, they would be, you know, Hey, what's this? And you know, Oh, that's a box order. We ordered boxes. It was no, nobody looked into it.
1: We need boxes. Everybody needs boxes. We're making sure yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, I, you know, there was a scam the other day that I read about this guy had made like over a million dollars just by billing, coming up with invoices and billing random companies like, like Amazon, Google, like large, massive companies. He would send in an invoice and if they, and they would just, sometimes they would pay them, you know, they'd get them and they pay. Sometimes they'd call. And he'd say, Oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, I don't know what that was for. Yeah, I'm okay. And then sometimes they would just pay him, you know, a couple hundred here, 200 here, 300 here, 50 bucks here. Like, and I remember looking back when I was running my company, I only had like 12 guys working for me. But I was paying little bills all the time $80 to some company that provides, you know, toner or something for a a computer or, just random little bills that we would get. And I would just pay them not. And and listen, half the time I was like, I don't even know what this is for. Like, God, we buy a lot of toner from different companies. Like, that's crazy. know, I just pay it. It's only $80. You Mm -hmm. just pay it and keep going. Like it's $80 wasn't worth looking into. So I could see not looking into, I mean, you weren't, it's not like you were taking $10,000, right? Or
0: No, not at, not at a time, not at all. But uh, I mean, over time it grew to that, but no, these are smaller transactions.
1: When, when they finally, when they finally told you the number, how, what was it?
0: So the final number that I was charged with was 367,000.
1: When you, did you think, did you realize it was that large?
0: Not at all, not at all. And and let me say, I was kiting money, so I'm moving like I'm having moving money back and forth. And so that three hundred sixty seven thousand, I actually only probably touched half of it because maybe maybe a little more than half, but not much more. Um, because they're not gonna they're not gonna say, oh well, we're crediting this because this came from that fraudulent account back into this account. They're not they're not gonna say that. So I didn't get. Like credit for that, which would have made a difference in Texas for me. If they had credit, if they had shown the actual number that I actually had my hands on, that money, it would have made the difference between a first degree felony and a second degree felony, which is huge.
1: But you didn't know it at the time.
0: I didn't, I was so naive to the legal system, Matthew. I'm, I handled it all completely wrong. Um, you know, I talked to detectives without an attorney. Uh, I knew I was guilty. I wasn't trying to. I, I wasn't trying to claim innocence. Um, yeah, I, so many mistakes happened there.
1: So what? What happened? Like, I mean, did one day you walk in and there were a couple of detectives standing there asking to ask questions, or what? How did it? Did, did you have a warning? Did they start asking questions, and a week later you were talking to a detective? Like, how that? How did it? How did it catch up with you?
0: So um, I'm moving money back and forth. And at that time I was, I was all through bank of America. Um, and for them, if an account is stagnant, then it will throw up a flag. Like if it, if I had stopped and they had seen uh, since I'm kiting money back and forth, if they had seen that this check couldn't be cleared easily, um, that might throw up a flag to have a banker look at the account. And um So I kept money moving. Well, there was this ice storm. I lived in Podunk, small town, Texas. I had it was dial up back then. (laughs) It was, you know, and um, there was this ice storm that I couldn't get online from home and everything was closed. Uh, Matthew, I don't, I don't even know where you're at, but in Texas, when it ices or snows, the whole state shuts down. We don't know how to drive in it. We don't know how to handle it. Schools are closed, businesses are sc- closed, right. um, You know, and so that's the situation. I I know I need to get somewhere where I can get internet be- so I can move this money. My husband at the time knew nothing of what was happening, so he hadn't a clue. He uh, yeah, so I couldn't just say, hey, this is fixing to happen if I don't get to town, you know, and he was not having it. I could not convince him that I needed to go into the office. I could not. convince. I mean, I had a truck. I'm like, I'm just going to put it in four wheel drive. I'm just going to inch in there, even if it takes me an hour and a half to get to work. And he's he wasn't having it. And I was not bold enough to say, here's the situation, you know. <laughs> and so, Listen, Brad. Uh, Right. (laughs) Right. Listen. Um, And so I stayed and that threw up a red flag for the bank. They started looking at things. They called my boss. Um, That was on a Friday uh, morning. By end of business Friday, they had looked at the account. And uh, I had a phone call that weekend from my boss saying, hey, the big wigs are coming into town Monday morning for a meeting. But I already knew every instinct in my body knew what, why they were coming to town. I knew what was happening. Um, and I, I walked right into it. I, I prepared mentally prepared myself to go into work that, that Monday morning. And I walk in, I walk into my office and my big boss is sitting at my desk in my chair. So yeah, it was serious. I, he, um, He's sitting there and you know, my heart, you still even though you kind of know like you have that gut feeling that it's fixing to go down, you still have that like sliver of hope that right. maybe, maybe everything's fine, maybe I've still made it by. Um, but when I saw him sitting in my chair and I'm just like, my heart just hit my stomach. Seriously, I I thought, well, here, here it goes. Um and he says, have a seat. And I sit down and I'm at the desk across from him and, uh, he's got some papers and he opens up his folder to show the papers and it's, it's transactions, it's bank transactions. And he's like, what's, what's going on here? And I just said, I don't know what you want me to say. You know, I, you, you already know what's going on and I've, I've been doing it and I don't have to say about it. You know, what could I say? Uh, in that moment, as as ugly as uh, as it is, the feeling to get caught doing anything—I mean, anything—as um, ugly as that feeling is, and as ugly as the feeling of the the fear of the unknown about what's going to come from this, there was also in that mix of emotions was some relief because, um, honestly, nobody knew about what I was what I had been doing. And I mean, nobody, I had not shared that with anybody. And so you can imagine to cover that income, how many lies I was having to tell, like, you know, I'm, I'm telling my parents, oh, I got a big bonus at work. I'm telling like, I'm, I'm taking my my mom and my um grandmother to these huge spa trips saying, Oh, we got a new client at work. And he, he sent this over. My boss is letting us use it. I'm staying in these going on vacations and staying in these hotels that I would have never been able to afford and telling my husband that it's my boss's account, that it's, they hold that suite. Like they don't hold a suite. A company doesn't hold a suite, you know? (laughs) And, And I'm just telling him all these outlandish things, which knowing my employer's, don't sound that outlandish, but in our lives of lower middle class America, you know, they are. And so. Anyways, just all all of those lies, man, that eats your soul, that eats your soul. And it's like that I I wouldn't have ever said that I was addicted to money or addicted to criminal activity. But once I was in it, I became addicted. You know, it's definitely definitely turned into an addiction. And with that, like any other addiction, you kind of, you're having to lie and you're having to hide it. And you're pushing people that you love further away because of that. And there was a definitely a sense of relief when all that came to an end when I knew, well, it's up.
1: I I talked to a guy a couple days ago that told me that his job when he started basically he was stealing from his job, he was, he had a, he had like a scheme and he said, the moment I started it and got away with it, he said, my mundane job that was a drag to go into work became super interesting. He's like, I suddenly really started liking my job. I love my job. And I was like, <laughs> you was stealing 500 to thousand dollars a day. He's like, it was great. He's like, and it was exciting. Suddenly it was exciting. I was doing paperwork. He said, suddenly paperwork got to be exciting. And I was, (laughs) I mean, I hear you. I know what you're saying.
0: That's it. When you're, when you're going to work and you're making, and, and I don't even remember the exact number, but it, it was decent money for, for someone with no college degree in a very small town. Um, But once I started doing all the shenanigans for them, I didn't feel like it was decent money anymore. Now my, my value of money has changed because I'm watching how much money they're making, being a little bit shisty. And, but once I start these transactions and I start getting more money, my mind goes to, oh, okay, I made this much an hour today. And all of a sudden I've convinced myself in my own mind that I'm far more successful than I actually am, you know, it, it's, it's a fraud, it's fake. It's not right. real, but I have convinced myself, like, you know, I I had to lie to myself to keep it up, but, but I'm like, well, I did this. Oh, I don't want to go to work today, but I make this. And so, yes, all of a sudden yeah. I have a big appreciation for my job that I had kind of lost.
1: Um. So, so your boss, does he say, look, we're going to call the authorities. He's a- after you, talk to them. They call the, what do they say? We're going to have a meeting. Me and Jimmy and Tom are going to go in the conference room and talk about this or, you know, we we've, we're calling the, you know, what what do they say? So
0: um, I, I, I did not know. um, But apparently the detectives were already there. Um, They were either already there or they had arrived just moments after me because I was only in the office with him for, Maybe three to four minutes, and the detectives walked in the office to detectives and i i had not i didn't have an arrest warrant at that point. I'm not so sure that I wasn't recorded in that room with him uh that never came up because I didn't go to trial and and I never started saying I didn't do it so but it seems logical because the mo- the time that they came in was you know me just saying what it was and um They just asked me, hey, we need you to come with us. We have some questions for you. And uh, I will tell anybody that has, don't be naive like me. And I know y'all have watched enough, whatever law and order to know you need to get a freaking attorney, whether you're innocent, whether you're guilty and you know you're guilty and you're going to say you're guilty, you need that lawyer from the beginning because I screwed myself by not doing that. I went with those guys. Uh, It was the typical little detective room like you see on TV. And I remember sitting in that room thinking, holy shit, what have I gotten myself into? Like all of a sudden the reality just came crashing down on me. I'd been living in this little fantasy world where I have all this extra money and I'm not getting caught and um, life is just peachy and rosy as far as finances go. My spirit was not peachy, you know, but it just kind of crashed down and uh, I did it all without an attorney.
1: Listen, I, I, I would have walked in that room and when he said, you know, what is this? I just said, what are you talking about? What is this? Those are those accounts you told me to open and shift that money around. Like you've been doing with all these other accounts. You know what it is. What are you asking me that for? I'm just doing what you told me to do. You and Bob and Jimmy, I don't know what you guys, what, what are we doing here? And then when the detective walked in and said, Hey, we're here to talk to you. I'd say, well, Listen, I, I'm sure you are. You you probably know what my boss has been doing. Because, yes. Because I don't know anything about this. I'm just a cog in the wheel. But I'm, I'm here to talk to you guys. Glad you came in. Yes. Ready to yes. tell you all about what these guys are doing. These shysters. I, I would, yeah. But uh, you're
0: a much quicker thinker than I am. And I, I didn't learn to think that quickly with Anything until prison life did that to me, but um, yeah, there there's so many. I didn't even. It never even occurred to me to even speak on anything they were doing until I got out of prison and I start making videos and I'm talking. People are asking me about my crime. They're asking me about this and that, and I'm just telling my story. And people are like, "Well, did your bosses get in trouble?" And I'm like, "Oh." Shit. No, but maybe they should have, you know, and it didn't even honestly didn't even occur to me. I, I had some animosity towards them um, just because I knew that they were so shy, Steve, but not necessarily because I, I just never put any blame on them for my actions, even though that was kind of the spark that started the fire. Right. But.
1: Right. Well. Yeah, if you had gotten an attorney he would have He would have immediately said, listen, we can keep you from being in... If it was a federal attorney, he would have been like, I can keep you from even being indicted. You know, like, because that's what happens is, you know, you'll get a... a some, sometimes if your crime is small and you've got um, information on a much, much larger crime that they didn't know about, a lot of times you can parlay that into... um into like a pre-trial intervention where they they're like look we're going to we're going to let you walk you owe this money you have to pay this money back but we're going to let you cooperate on this other thing that way they don't have to put you on the stand as someone who's a criminal you know and they allow you to just pay back and then of course the 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 US attorney would have made you sound like oh she's just a victim you know, or they would have tried to have tried to get you to say that they told me to do this they they suggested that I you know oh it would have been you'd have been in a whole different world if it had been two FBI agents that showed up yeah um, there was so. a whole
0: there was a whole um plethora of bullshit that happened regarding the money and them um, um because I also I kept pushing when I did finally get an attorney and it was a paid attorney, but it was also a, in the small town where, um, I mean, they were, they were coming for me already. And he, I honestly believe my attorney was part of that. He was not for me. And so much so that the first offer he brought to me and asked me to sign encouraged me to sign was for a 40 year sentence four zero. zero. So he definitely wasn't for me. Um, but Sometime during that, I kept pushing like, I, I want another audit because I didn't take that much money. Yes, I moved that around, but the money that I actually had changes my felony to a second degree felony. And that's pretty massive, you know, and um, they kept not, not, not. And then later I realized that they were not doing that because my employers got to file the insurance claim for the entire amount, you know, they got to get $365,000 from an insurance company, even though that's not what they lost. Like it was just crooked all the way around, but my brain. Yeah. I I think I felt so guilty and not so guilty towards the, and I, I realize how this makes me sound and I'm going to say it anyway, because it's the truth, but not, not so much guilty towards my actions with the company, but guilty for putting myself in a situation that would cause my family so much grief and trauma and all of the things that come with the ripple effect of our actions. Like I, I just, that was such a heavy on my chest that I was only looking inward and I, and that's why you need a good attorney because they could have led me in some other directions. Um,
1: yeah. A couple hundred thousand dollars, two to $300,000 honestly probably would have gotten you a few months if that in a federal prison. You might've done 90 days, might've done six months and then you'd be on probation for a couple of years and you have to pay restitution payments while you were on probation. State, even the state, I although I know guys that have gotten 10 years before in the state for you know for you know what was probably half a million dollars which doesn't seem like a lot of money to me to do 10 years for still what that's insane but i also know the other guys who got attorneys who ended up getting probation like we all stole half a million dollars just four of us or three of us these three guys got attorneys they got probation this guy walked in with out an attorney and just said, look, and just explain to the, to the judge what happened with like a public defender who said, yeah, you want to do it? Go ahead. Explained it. And the judge hammered him Mm -hmm. in like, I thought I want to say it was close to 10 years. Cause I remember thinking what they were like, because the guy that told me about it was this guy uh, uh, that I wrote a story on. And he was like, yeah, it's insane. And I did, I looked at it. I think the guy got like eight years or something. And then, you know, and his attorney, his public defender was like, what did the public defender say? He said something. He, he was like, oh, it's a miscarriage of justice and this and that. But it's like, well, why didn't you talk him out of it? You know? But the other thing, is too, the other guy took pleas, and this guy took a no contest or whatever. He, he wasn't willing to admit that he was, they have enough to convict me, but I'm not going to admit I did anything. And he went in front of the judge and argued and explained, look, this is what happened. I'm not guilty. And the judge was like, No. Nah. Mm. So, yeah, people are um, super naive. Sometimes you get people that are super naive and their attorneys don't really explain what jeopardy they're in. You know, they're like they listen to them and they don't even try and talk them out of it. Like. My my girlfriend, in her case, she was going to go to trial and her attorney never even tried. He was like, are you sure you want to do that? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And he was like, "Okay, like, that's it. That's what you said was okay. No, 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 Listen, you don't seem to understand. I would hammer them. Like, you're, you're insane. Do you know what you'll get? Can't go to trial. You're
0: guilty. They got evidence. Right. (laughs) Right. And everything that we were like, everything you learn in kindergarten about being honest and just telling, telling the truth and telling what it is, all of that. You can't bring that to the legal system. That's not how it works. It's stacked against right. you. <laughs> you know, all, it, it, there's, you don't get extra credit for telling the truth you don't get, I mean, all of that's out. and And that became very obvious pretty early on, but I had already, you know, I had already, like I said, I never was gonna try to claim innocent, but honestly, I thought I would get probation. With restitution. And in county jail, you know, these girls who had been to prison and in and out of jail hearing people's cases and, you know, the jailhouse lawyers, they're telling me, girl, you're getting probation money. You ain't never been in trouble before. Girl, you're going home. Don't worry about it. You're going home. And then I go to the court the first time. My offer's 40. And then it's what, 26 or something. And then it's, you know, and it ended at 20. You know, I, I signed for a 20 year sentence. And that's a whole nother. That's just a whole nother. My attorney pulls out the in Texas, the way that they do probation. I mean, excuse me, parole. Um, He pulls it up on his laptop and he's like, this is why you can sign this. He's like, look, at 28 months, you see parole. Everybody that doesn't get in trouble goes home, you know, and it turns out they don't know what the hell they're talking about. They're not the parole board. They don't, you know, and I was just Uh, I I was eight months into it. I was ready for it to be over at 28 months in my mind. I was like, okay, I won't miss my oldest kids high school graduation. Um, I'll be there for my youngest kids first day of kindergarten. Like these are what's the things that are going through my mind. I'm like, okay, I can make that work. I can make that work. And then I get to prison and that's just not how things work.
2: He built some of the nation's largest banks out of an estimated $55 million because 50000000 million wasn't enough and $60 million seemed excessive. He is the most interesting man in the world.
1: I don't typically commit crimes, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my
2: friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. I, I know a... I know a chick, sorry,
1: I know a woman that she and her girlfriend got into a shootout with the police. They robbed multiple convenience stores. She, I think she rammed a police car and they fired at the police car with her and her girlfriend in it. Didn't kill her, killed her girlfriend. She was charged with um, attempted with with her girlfriend's murder, I think, and I think and I could be getting some of this wrong. I think it was she got charged with murder, like an attempted murder of a, like a police officer. Actually, no, they dropped the pol- th- that because um, they found out that the police officer was was like he was ex- he like she didn't actually drive towards him, but she got out on parole after a few years, like five six years first time, I think first or second time she was up for parole, she got out and she got like a life sentence, like a look, 30 year sentence or a life sentence, got out in like five years or six years. I did an interview with her. I can't I, like, that is an insane sentence that you got. That really is like, yeah, that's, it's outrageous. So, so what did you stay married to your original, to your husband that you were married no. to? Him?
0: No, we didn't stay married. We um, he he held me down the whole time. You know, he he made sure that our girls knew me. He brought them to visit. He had the phone set up for me to talk to them. Um, he most definitely held them down. But our marriage just didn't survive. And I don't even think it's so much. Our marriage started falling apart when I start throwing all these lies. You know, our marriage was not, I didn't go to prison and our marriage was great. I went to prison and our marriage was already rocky because I had been hiding this huge thing from him. And so, no, our marriage didn't survive. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's as much as you could ask. What you got was as much as you could have asked. Had it been a perfect marriage? I mean, that's a lot, like 10 years. That's a lot to ask of somebody. Um, but yeah, um, I think I've actually mentioned, I, I, I I remember seeing a a movie before I went to prison where the guy, it was in New York's back in the seventies. He, the beginning of the movie, he gets out of jail early, like six months early, you know, there's overcrowding, they're releasing people. And so in the beginning credits of the movie, they show you him unpacking, you know, that the guards say, hey, overcrowding, you're in the next bunch, you're getting out. He's like, oh, can I use the phone? And, you know, I got to call my wife. And the guy's like, they're like, no, you got to get on the bus. So he packs his stuff right away and the credits are rolling, gets on the bus. He's traveling, gets to the bus station, goes to call his wife. There's a line. He's got a little pass, to, you know, uh, for a taxi. He Gets in the taxi, drives to the house, goes in the house, walks upstairs to the up in this uh, tower. He's in uh, um in New York, downtown New York, um, and puts the key in the lock and goes to, like, open the door, and hears his wife inside say, "Honey, do you want some? Do you want some wine?" And he stops and he looks in and he can see his wife in there, and you can hear a guy say. Yeah, baby, I'll take some wine. And she walks over mm-hmm. and you see her walk off with the wine. And he realizes, oh my gosh. And, and he kind of, for a second, you can see he's angry. And then he stops. And he closes the door, unlocks it, goes downstairs, walks across the street, calls from the payphone, and says, and she answers and she's like, hey, baby, what are you doing? How are you? He goes, listen, I got out, let out early because of prison overcrowded overcrowding. I'm on my way home, but I didn't want to stop by in case you needed to clean the place up. And she says, "You? she's like, um, how, how long till you get here? And she, he goes, how long do you need? Is 15 or 20 minutes long enough? She goes, yeah, I, it, it's fine. I'll have everything cleaned up by the time you get here. And he goes okay, and she's like, "I love you," and he's like, "I love you too." Hangs up the phone, and he stands across the street at the payphone. And like five minutes later, she comes downstairs with this guy and all of his bags, and he's screaming like, "I don't understand!" And she helps him throw all his stuff into a taxi. And she goes, "You knew what it was. You knew he was coming home. It's over." And the guy gets in the taxi and drives off, and she runs upstairs. Then. The husband waits a minute. He goes upstairs, goes up, opens the door. The wife hugs him, says, oh, my gosh, I've made dinner. He goes and sits down and she says, would you like some wine? And he says, yes, I would like some wine, baby. And she goes, OK. And she goes and gets him some wine. And that's how it start, the movie starts. And I remember thinking when I watched that, I remember thinking if you go to prison, that's the best you can hope for. That's it. It's the best you can hope for. And you know, so I and when I went to prison, I always thought to myself, like, whoever I'm with, it that's that's it's over. That's that's horrible. But it's just the only people I know where their marriages survived were where the husband was in prison and he was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, and it was a short sentence. Five mm-hmm. years, maybe five years, six years, you know, so. So yeah, that's, it's a, it's a tough situation because, you know, it's, it's over. And, and even then, you know, they're, they're just praying that their, their spouse, you know, if the marriage is over, that the spouse, you know, still answers the phone, brings their kids, you know, that stuff, like that's the best you can hope for. It's a horrible situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, the support that's needed even if the marriage dissolves, like that's massive. I can't say enough for it, even just, hey, this is going on. And I just need to tell you about how bad it sucks in here right now, you know, and and to have that listening ear um, that that's huge. And then to take it a step further and make sure I had a relationship with my kids. Yeah, I couldn't never have asked for anything more because he could have easily I could not know my daughters easily. So. Right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you got, you got lucky. Now you didn't get a lot of, you didn't get, get a lot of breaks, but that was a break, you know? Um It's prison. Yeah, that's, so 10 years in a state prison. Oh my God. In Texas. Oh my God. As a white chick with blonde hair. Whew.
0: Whew. Yeah. Matthew, I had never experienced and, and like I said, I kind of grew up in this little bubble, um, but I had never experienced racism uh, until, and, and it was from staff. It wasn't even from other ladies. I'll say that the ladies that I was incarcerated with, and I was on a maximum security unit, man, they rock. They right. they stick together. They There are some little cliques, but it's not based on race. It's not based on hometown it's not no no kind of affiliation it's just based on these are people that think like i do you know just like you would anywhere else um and we we were able to i was able to make a lot of strong connections in there with those ladies but it was culture shock for certain i mean it was very diverse um i had not um been around a lot of people of color Uh, It opened so many it opened my eyes and the eyes of so many of my family members into how like the school to prison pipeline is how um, how 33 percent more of uh, African-American or black people are incarcerated in this country than white people. Like it's just it just opened so much for me. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I wish that I could have learned about those things without going to prison. Right. I wish that my eyes could have kind of been open to how this country actually is, because I think I lived in this little bubble and it was all cupcakes and rainbows and butterflies. And then I get there and I'm realizing these ladies have had a freaking rough life. You know, these ladies have grown up with their parents as addicts or their uncle's pimping them out to get high, like just just horrible things. They've had childhood trauma that I never had to experience. So as sucky and crappy as my situation was, I did not have to look far to realize how fortunate I have had it my entire life. And during my incarceration, because I had parents and my brother and grandparents and you know, as my kids grew, grew, I had them and lots of those ladies didn't know where their kids were. They didn't have anybody to get on the phone with. Um, So Texas prison conditions are very hard. They're tough. They're raw. You know, it's uh, uh, Texas A&M did a study that the temperatures reach 149 degrees in the summer. in some of those cells, it's, it's rough. But um, the ladies, we we stuck together, so yeah, I did come into the prison, um, coming from quite a bit more privilege than most people in that prison. Most people with my kind of crimes do go to feds. They're they're not used to seeing me there, uh, my my type of crime. And um, but I was accepted in there amongst the inmates. Now the the laws the laws gave me hell,
1: right? So when so how many times did you go to parole and get? turned out i'm assuming
0: yeah five or six times i I, um yeah it's bad (laughs) texas parole they say the significant monetary loss we're denying you because of some shit i cannot change and that's they love the parole board in texas loves to say sorry you can't go home because the nature of your crime sorry you can't go home because um you It was multiple criminal, like excessive criminal activity, because maybe it was multiple transactions. Like they like to say things that you have no control over. It's it's insane. So we're working on trying to get some legislation passed to change that right now. But yeah, it's insane. So I go, I go, and I'm doing. I'm in prison, and I'm I'm in enrolled in college. I'm not getting in trouble. I'm in the. Privileged dorm where people that don't get in trouble live. I'm an outside trustee, um, which is like the highest level of trust for an inmate to have. Doing all, everything I think I'm supposed to, taking these correspondence classes, racking up certificates for the parole board. Um, my poor mom. There, my family's just naive to the legal system. You know, I'm I. I start to go into review for parole my mom calls the warden and she's like my daughter's up for parole and da 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 and um the warden tells her oh she's an outside trustee yeah she'll make parole they don't freaking know y'all need to stop speaking on it y'all do not know what the parole is you know Mm -hmm. and so my I just remember that conversation with my mom she's like honey the warden says you're probably coming home you know and um it's just all this hope and all this buildup. And then, uh, and then in Texas, you don't go in front of a parole board. It's all on paper. You know, a, a representative gathers the information you go in and talk to them, but they already have the information. They're like, so you're in college. Yes. Check. So you took this class. Yes. Check. I mean, that's how it is. And then, uh, you have to wait. And that, that answer was a one year set off. So, uh, it's just the same process year after year. And, Matthew by the middle of my sentence, I, I wilded out. I, I lost it. I was, um, yeah, I mean, all all the way the worst of the worst, whatever you, whatever you're thinking, when I say that about somebody in prison, how they act, that's what I started doing. I just didn't give a shit, thought they were going to make me do my whole time. Um, I began kind of lying to myself in my mind. My mental state was not good. And I was telling myself like, your kids would have been better off if you died instead of went to prison because they would have already been recovered. And as it is, I'm freaking every year with this parole and every day that I'm not there and they know that I'm here, but I'm not there. You know, that's harmful and hurtful and traumatic for them. And so, I, I mean, it ended up in like a couple suicide attempts, I ended up in the prison psych ward. Which, if you think prison sucks, you think the conditions in prison are bad. You ought to hit the psych hospital, you know, because that's that's the real. That's um, how how this country handles mental illness, and how prisons handle mental illness is just to tuck them away, lock them away, leave them unheard. And uh,
1: yeah, I yeah. was I was gonna say the uh, that prisons are the the uh, mental hospitals. Like they don't, you know, like what mental hospitals are there? There's almost none of them. you know, now they just wait for you to commit a crime and they just put you through the prison system. And it's just brutal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, yeah, I saw that. That's I often, I often say that the women that I was incarcerated with, they were broken long before they went to prison. Uh, mental, Mental illness, substance abuse disorder, disorder, childhood traumas, growing up in poverty—just all of that. Um, but prison, it, it broke me. There in the middle of my sentence, it, it broke me. So,
1: so at, uh, I mean, so when you did get, you know, probation, were you, were you, you were I mean, pro, oh, sorry, when you did get parole, were you just? You just kind of were shrug- you were good just going through the motions and kind of shrugging it off. It's not like you weren't holding out hope anymore. Is that basically what I'm hearing?
0: Basically, I I pulled myself out of that that funk or whatever it was. I was down in the dungeon for about two and a half years.
1: <clears throat> the when dungeon is that like the hole, the shoe?
0: No, I mean, in my own, like the dungeon oh. in my soul. <laughs> okay. So I did spend time in the shoe lots of times, but never like the longest time was two months. During that time, because I was acting out, I was wilding out. And um, something just kind of clicked in me. And I thought, Marcy, are you gonna, is this you now? Is this you? Is this or, or are you going to come out of this? Because I wasn't in a healthy place, you know? So I pulled myself out of that and sat down. I started, I got off all my restrictions because I was on every kind of restriction and started going to the store. Um, and that's, like that's all the only place i went i stopped going to the chow hall i stopped going to any kind of chapel events or churches or you know i'm in texas i'm in the bible belt it's major indoctrination in our prison system and um i used to go to all that to see everybody right and um do whatever traffic and trade and do whatever prison stuff that goes down and uh i just stopped i i I requested a job change so that I worked in my dorm. I was the SSI or the dorm janitor and I, I barely left and I just hung out with myself and the few, um, people that i just really trusted there in the dorm. And I stopped getting disciplinary cases. And then I started getting my lines back, which is like the privilege to even make parole because I had gone so far down that parole wasn't even seeing me anymore. So, uh, once I did that, I started I didn't really have hope that they were going to that I was going to make parole. But also, I knew at least if I I was happy when I came up for review again, because I knew at least if I didn't make it, it was on them. Because at least I, ha- I was not getting in trouble anymore and I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then they decided it was time. <laughs> so uh, they, they gave me parole with this huge stipulation, like I make parole, but I don't get home till a year later because I have this six month in prison program that takes months to to pull chain to. And then I have to go to a halfway house. It's got all these stipulations, but um, yeah, I make parole.
1: (sighs) Okay. And you get out and you immediately start doing TikToks.
0: No, I, I didn't start doing TikToks for about for several months. I am um, man, Matthew, coming home as a mom to kids that you left when they were in diapers and now they're in middle school, or you left in middle school and now they're grown. And I have I have two grandchildren. Um that was my focus. Like people would ask when after I made parole, they'd be like, What are you gonna do when you get home? I'm like, I'm loving up my kids man, I want to wrestle and play. And I, I, I just, I I want to love up my kids, you know? And, um, so that was my primary focus. I start working at Amazon. I applied for them online and I start working there and I like it. It's kind of institutionalized, honestly, working in that warehouse. And so my, it was fine for me. I'm easy to take instructions. I'm easy to, you know, right. a lot of people hate that job, but honestly, for me, it, it fit right in, uh, highly recommend if you're getting out of prison to go work there because it, it worked wonderfully for me. Um, but my parents, my dad, and my brother are musicians and in Fort Worth, in Texas, in Fort Worth, Texas, they're well known amongst the music scene and they have this big party. It's like COVID's ending and it's kind of a My parents had an anniversary. My brother had his 40th birthday all during COVID. um, They lost a lot of friends, but then they also had a lot of friends survive COVID. And it was a big party. You know, they're hosting this big party and there are hundreds of people there. And I'm on stage introducing musicians. I'm on stage begging people for money to tip the musicians. Um, I'm on stage when my parents, my parents renewed their vows at that At that party and in the whole the whole time i'm like i'm just so glad to be home and my brother's on the microphone saying we're celebrating this and this and we're celebrating that marcy's home and i see people like side-eyeing each other and they don't know what the hell we're talking about and these are you know these are my parents friends and i'm like it, it felt like there was a huge elephant in the room And, uh, I had a conversation with my dad after that. I'm like, people don't know, dad, what's up? People don't know. I've been gone a a decade. (laughs) Like, you know, and he's like, well, we told some of our closest friends, but we didn't put it out there because we didn't know how you would feel when you came home. We, you know, and, uh, so I was like, okay. So I, I had been introduced to TikTok. I had been watching videos and, um, I thought, all right. So I made a TikTok and it was me with my mugshot, you know, and it's just like it's me saying, well, I Googled my name and y'all, I wish I had never done it. And I'm showing my mugshot in the picture, you know, and that started and, and I put it on my parents Facebook You know, and that's just how I was like. This is where I've been, (laughs) and I mostly just wanted people to know because I'm. It's part of my story. It's part of my history. It's what happened. I'm. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not going to hide it because it's just what it is. And if you want to ask me something, you can. And if not, that's fine, but this is what it is. You know, this is where I've been. Um, but from that video, people just start asking questions and they want to know, what did you do? What, where were your kids? Who took care of your kids? What, I mean, they just want to know everything. Um, and I just start answering, you know, that 90% of my TikToks are a response to someone's question. I'm, I'm just answering and it just takes off and I'm like appalled at how much response I'm getting. And, um, you know, it just, the account grows and grows and grows and it starts opening all these doors for me. TikTok, (laughs) TikTok was not paying me very much. I was making my car note with TikTok, which I was, I thought was phenomenal. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. Within six months, I was paying my car note with, with TikTok. It, it just, it took off. Um, but but that's it. I mean, I wasn't going to be able to quit my job or anything, but then it starts. I start getting contacted about speaking engagements. Um, I work with five different, different universities, um, talking to their classes and all of those are like little money, little paid gigs. Right. Um, but all that adds up. And then, um, I get (laughs) some big opportunities, which uh, Rosie O'Donnell, she contacts me and says, hey, I, I love your I love your videos and we need to talk, you know, and I'm like, what, you know, t- checking her account. Is this her? This is yeah. a verified. This is a verified account. Is it really her? And I'm calling my brother be- because I'll tell you this. I've gotten scammed two different times since I've gotten out of prison. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. I was thinking you would be. I would think you. I've been. I've had multiple people attempt to scam me, and I've sent them text messages back and been like, "Listen, nice try. I, I I'm, I hear you. Yeah. But no, it's, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sending you the extra money that you accidentally sent me. It stop. Stop.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 it wasn't like one of those. Hey, do you, you have a Cash App messages? It wasn't that. It was purchasing things online, or I purchased something through Facebook Marketplace that was a fraud, and I, I just, I didn't realize how much things progressed. In in, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, there's, anyways, there's scumbags out here. Yeah, yeah. Um and so my brother's automatically knowing my history of getting scammed, you know, he's like, It's not her, Marcy. It is not her. Something's going on. They're fixing to start asking you for a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, What? I mean, it's what does it hurt to talk to her? You know, so I I talk to her on the phone and I hear her voice and it sounds like her. And and she's saying i I want to do something. I want to work out some kind of production deal. I want to make a story about your life outside of prison. And and I'm telling my brother, he's like, Marcy, make her FaceTime you. And I said, I'm not fixing (laughs) to ask this lady. Who am I to ask Rosie O'Donnell? I'm sorry, ma'am. Can you FaceTime me? You know, and um, I so the way I handled it, because she was so friendly and casual with text messages back and forth. And so it almost made my family feel even more so that it was a fraud, because why would she be so casual conversating with us, uh, with me, you know, and so my parents are over for dinner one night. And I had a scheduled phone call with Rosie. And I said, yes, y'all come for dinner. But when I have the phone call, I'll need to go back and take it. Well, she called, but it just happened. She called on FaceTime. So it was kind of insane. I'm in the kitchen um, and with my mom and um, my dad. And he, I'm like, oh, OK, my phone's ringing. And I look and I was like, it's FaceTime. And everybody's like, oh, you know, and I hit the hit it. And it's it's Rosie O'Donnell on my phone. And, you know, my mom's like, hi, Rosie. <laughs> and It was just I was like, oh, my goodness, Rosie. Here are my parents. <laughs> now let's go have our phone call. But that was like the legit. Oh, this is really her. And this is really something she wants to do. Um, since then, we've been working with writers creating creating a, a series, and I think it's going to be really cool. So,
1: I mean, that's you know, I think that you know, well, I mean, obviously, once again, that's like the best that could best thing that could happen. But the the other thing is that. You know, if you don't like I know I met so many people in prison that just they they don't want to be out there. They want to hide what they did. They want to, you know, like they want to bury, you know, try and bury any newspaper articles like like they're just not willing to accept, you know, anybody. They don't want anybody to know. Um, and it's like, OK, that's fine. You, you know, that's your prerogative. But then you're you you may be missing one. I think you're missing a huge opportunity just in your soul, just to to be honest instead of feeling like you're hiding the whole time. And then the other thing is like, you know, if you don't tell your story, then no opportunity is going to come your way. Like, Like you have to, to me, it's like, I have to try and make the best of every situation. The best of your situation is being honest and it comes back to you, right? I mean, for you, that's, that's, the best, you could have just gone back and said, yeah, I'm going to bury my head in the sand and never talk about it again and avoid the subject. And maybe even have maybe even lie if somebody were to ask me and 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 just, you know, I'm going to change my name and I'll use the new name and uh, I'll I'll you know, like, it's like, what are you doing?
0: Yeah. And like, that happens. So many people that I was incarcerated with, um, Now, I have one friend that she changed her name, but not so much to hide just because she was a new self. That's how she said it. I'm rebuilding and and, but lots, lots of people I was locked up with changed their name on social media. They go by something else. They change their name legally, um, all of that. But I'll, I'll say it was. Yes, telling my story definitely opened doors, definitely. If I had not done that, I would. I'm not just gonna say that I wouldn't be a ha- I wouldn't have a happy life, but I wouldn't be able to advocate the way that I do. I wouldn't have the the time to go to the Capitol and testify for legislation. I wouldn't have time to correspond as much as I do with the ladies that are incarcerated, trying to make changes and helping them. Um, I mean, it just it it changed my life so much dramatically for the better financially and time-wise, because I would probably be working in a warehouse or something of that nature, I would, uh, you know, I mean, my life would be very different, but additionally to that, telling my story has been so therapeutic. It's, it's such a breath of fresh air to know that everything's out. (laughs) You know, there's nothing, nobody, I'm I'm not at work thinking, I hope my boss doesn't see, you know, I hope somebody doesn't Google me and see my mugshot or my write up in the article when I, or the newspaper, when I got arrested or, you know, it's none of that. It's out, it's there. And as I'm starting to make videos and I'm working in Amazon, I have my coworkers be like, girl, I saw you, I I saw you make fried pickles with the hairdryer, you know, on TikTok. (laughs) And, And I'm like, yeah. And then they're like, I didn't know you'd been to prison. I'm like, yeah, I have. I've only been home at that time, you know, eight months or nine months or whatever. So yeah. Uh, I think that even if I didn't like publish my stories, though, it would have been beneficial for me to even record them. Like I recommend video diaries. I didn't ever know in life how crucial it was to be able to share your thoughts and then hear yourself say your thoughts. Um, Yeah, so I do. I'm TikTok has led me to video diary a lot, uh, a lot. My grandmother has been um diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's and she's uh been such a an influence on my entire life but held me down like like a rock during my incarceration and um I video diary that those things those interactions with her and it's just it's very therapeutic it's very helpful
1: um okay so Do you have anything else you can think of you want to talk about or
0: well just that um sharing our stories as people that have had a criminal background or been to prison or had legal troubles um which it i mean it's one in three people in this country have interaction with the law uh, at some point you know so um the us being vocal about that and telling people about that and being successful in our spaces whatever that success looks like whatever if you're working at um, mcdonald's and um, you get a customer service bonus or recommendation or employee of the month and your coworkers and bosses know that you've been to prison and that you have a past that just that's just helping break down the barriers you know i just think it's so important for us to be okay with what has happened in the past to forgive ourselves and walk with our heads up high and be proud of who we are now. Hey, this is Matt Cox.
1: And if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell. So you get notified of videos just like this. Also share this video, check out uh, Marcy's one, her, you know, her Instagram, her TikTok, but also her YouTube channel. And um, when I was incarcerated, I wrote a bunch of true crime books, and they're all available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Nobles. So check out the trailers.
2: Using
4: forgeries and bogus identities, Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon? and audible.
3: Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive. And a major thorn in the side of the US Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent. How a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible.
5: Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, No one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government. Money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began work to build the largest private militia on the planet, over 1 million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity, the bizarre true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available
4: now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini in the 1990s was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible.
5: Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic con man against an egotistical, pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison, and he's ready to talk he's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The 11.1 million dollars in life insurance, the missing 1.5 million dollars in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his stories a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout. The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible.
4: Matthew B. Cox is a con man incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams, Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP, a drug program in name only. RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The Program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The program. How a conman survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons Cult of RDAP. Available now on Amazon and Audible.
1: If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.